So, judgment. Judgment is not really a popular topic, right? Like, if we're honest, we really get uncomfortable around people that we would say are being judgmental. This week, I actually saw a Facebook friend post, I hate judgmental people, <laughs> which was ironic, right? Um, crunch gems. Uh, on a, we, we were out in East County yesterday. I saw Crunch Gems, and their slogan is "No Judgments, No Judgments." Planet Fitness is a gym. They actually have a judgment-free zone in their gym, which I'm wondering what that actually looks like. Like, is it a small piece in the back where you can go, and that's where you can escape judgment? But hey, if you're over by the free weights, forget about it. You're getting judged. What is a judgment-free zone? And spirituality, too, that's the other thing. Like, when you go to Barnes & Noble, the spirituality section, you see care for the soul, chicken soup for the soul. I have yet to see the great new bestseller, Judgment for the Soul. (laughs) Nobody would buy it, right? But yet Jesus here talks about judgment. And I know it's not a popular topic. It's extremely, like this idea of judgment day is extremely unpopular. This, this concept of a God who comes down and smites the wicked. And on one hand, I think modern people say this is, this is a primitive idea at best. And really, at worst, it's a dangerous idea. But the question is, have they really faced up to how much they need a judge? How much we need divine judgment? Because on the other hand, the gospel, which is the way Christianity understands judgment, is a much more nuanced, complex, multifaceted view than than the superficial view that most people have about Judgment Day. So today we want to look at what the text says, what Jesus says about Judgment Day in this last sermon that Jesus preaches. And the text teaches us four things, four things we need to learn today. I normally give you the points in order ahead of time. Today, I'm I'm not going to spoil it. We're just going to take one at a time. And the first point right out of the gate is this. We need a judgment day. We need a judgment day. Jesus says categorically in verse 48, there is a judge. Right? Read verse 48. There's a judge for the one who rejects me. And does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. That's a categorical statement. Right? There's a last day. Right? History is not cyclical. History is linear. And there's a final day coming. And Jesus says, that is going to be a judgment day. And there is a judge. And he ties in, interestingly for me, ties in one of his favorite metaphors to explain himself. He always talks about himself being light. You see that? All throughout, and he ties that metaphor of him being light in with this idea of judge. And the idea of light, I mean, that's a, that's a positive image, isn't it? It's like, oh, that's a, that's a good image. I feel comfortable around the light. In fact, I don't really like darkness, right? I like light. But in verse 46, he says, I've come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So light's this positive image, but this idea of judge that's not really a positive image, is it? Like when you think of a judge, think of a guy sitting up high on a bench behind a wall of rich mahogany, with many leather-bound books, right? And he's sitting up there and he's looking down at you, always down, right? You never see the judge sitting at a table, just looking across at you, smiling, 
Judge is definitely never below you. He's always looking down, right? It's this, it's this terrifying image. And Jesus mixes it with this really positive image of light. And I think what he's saying is, without judgment, we're in total darkness. And there's a couple of authors, I think, that have done a really good job of explaining this idea to me. And, and I want to share them with you because I think it'll help. The first one, maybe you were in school, maybe you read the book The Crucible. It's a guy named Arthur, Arthur Miller um, who wrote The Crucible. He's a playwright. And he had this play um, called After the Fall. And in his play After the Fall, there's this character named Quentin. And Quentin says this quote that is stunning to me. I'm going to read through the quote and then we'll talk about it. But here's, here's what he says. Quentin says in After the Fall, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or how smart you are, or what a good lover. And then later, what a good father. And finally, how wise, or how powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway, I think that now my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which is just another way of saying despair. He experienced despair. And why? Listen to what he's saying. It's remarkable. Quentin, Quentin represents Arthur Miller. He represents the average 21st American, 21st century American, who basically believed that there was no God. They, they got rid of the idea of traditional religion, got rid of the idea of really, you know, right and wrong, checks and balances, you know, this whole idea of heaven and hell, punishment and reward. And he says he felt liberated until one day he looked up and the bench was empty and there was no judge. And what does that leave? Endless, meaningless litigation. What does he mean by litigation? What, what he means is we will litigate. We will argue with ourselves and others. We do it all the time. We say, you know, it's better to be unselfish than to be selfish. It's wrong to trample on the rights of, of poor people, of people who are in a different class than you. It's wrong to do that. We say it's better to keep your promises than to be a backstabber. Right? We, we believe this kind of stuff. We're saying what's better, we're telling each other what's right, what's wrong, saying I'm a good person, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. We're arguing with ourselves, we're arguing with, our, with others, we're proving ourselves, we're justifying our existence. And he suddenly realized that there was nobody on the bench of the universe. There's no judge. What does that mean? That means there's no way to tell what's right and wrong. There's no way to say this action is better than that action. Who's to say? Who's to say? Besides, in the end, everything's going to burn up anyway. So think about that for a second. How can there be any basis for saying this is better than that? How can there be any basis for saying this is better than that if nobody's on the bench? In other words, he's liberated by the thought that there's no judge, but he's plunged into total darkness at the same time because he realized you can have total liberation and then you end up with total meaninglessness because nothing you do in the end matters. Nothing you do in the end will matter at all. It won't make a difference. It's kind of like Pokemon Go. 
which, which I've been playing recently. I love it. My kids and I were connecting. We're playing Pokemon Go. And I see people running around. There's a Charizard over there. They're gone, right? Where'd they go? I, they said there was a Charizard in the parking garage, you know, and there they go. Running all over. Catch it. you got to catch them all. <laughs> and then there's a guy in Great Britain. I saw an article this week. He finally caught them all. First guy. And here's what he said. I caught them all, and it wasn't worth it. <laughs> He didn't get anything. It was pointless. It was me. And I started thinking, man, that's so much like a lot of us in life, running around, trying to catch it all, trying to win it all. And again, what's the point? What do you get if there's no judge? There's no judgment day. And that's what Arthur Miller is talking about. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 12, that if you believe that there's no judge, then there's no point. That's the darkness. There must be a judgment day. Otherwise, you have no meaning individually. And on the other hand, there must be a judgment day because we won't have any hope socially. A few months ago, we did a series um, on the big questions of life, and we asked you guys to write in questions. One of the big questions was hell. So I preached a sermon on hell. It's on the website. And I brought in this philosopher, Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian uh, theologian and philosopher, and I wanted to bring him back because I think he has something important to say to this topic of judgment day. Um, and Wolf, Wolf takes on the other myth about Judgment Day, right? We just saw that Arthur Miller basically said, if there's no Judgment Day, oh, we're, we're free to decide for ourselves. Yeah, you're liberated, but at what cost? At the cost of any meaning and hope in life, right? And Miroslav Wolf takes on the other myth that says, basically, if you believe in a judgmental God who's going to come down and smite people, then you're going to be a vengeful, oppressive, judgmental person, Right? And Wolf says, oh yeah? You want to bet? Here's his, here's his quote from his book, Exclusion and Embrace. Um, and I have a few of these highlighted on the, a few sentences highlighted on the screen here. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. I'm going to say that again. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many people in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry with injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. Here's what he's saying. He's saying anyone who thinks that this idea of a God who on the last day will come and make an end of violence and pay back all injustice, if you think that leads to aggression and oppression, and becoming judgmental people, 
here's what I want to ask you. Have you ever really experienced violence and oppression? He says, probably not. Because when people who, who are really victims of injustice, people says, like, people experience the things like his people had in war-torn creation, right? When somebody sees that, you will pick up the sword. You will get sucked into this endless cycle of violence and retaliation, which is probably, like, if we're honest, that cycle is probably responsible for all the big misery in the world, isn't it? War and famine and all the horrible things that we see going on around us, the violence. You will be drawn. You say, I've been wronged. I'm going to repay. Let me ask you something. Imagine you have a friend. Imagine Liam Neeson's your friend. He's got a highly developed set of skills, right? And his daughter gets kidnapped and everything. He's going after him. What are you going to tell him? What are you going to say? What are you going to say to somebody who's had their villages burned down to the ground and had their family murdered in front of them? What are you going to say to them? You know, violence just doesn't really solve anything. Oh, yeah? It's about to. What are you going to say? You know, hey, imagine a society where, you know, there was just no law and order. It would be, it would be horrible, you know. If everyone takes the law into their own hands, what kind of world will we have? Oh, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad idea. No, of course not. That's not going to stop anybody in their tracks. The only thing that will stop a person who's really been a victim is this. There is a judge, and it's not you. There is a judge. He's going to make everything right. No one will escape, and that judge is not you. And unless that's at the very bottom of your heart, you're never going to be able to live nonviolently in the world, Fulf says. If you think that the idea of, of a judging God leads to more violence, it shows you probably haven't had much violence or injustice yourself. You've probably had a very comfortable little life. Are we tracking? So, so what are these guys saying, Wolf and Miller? So, something worries me. Like when I think about the average American that's kind of trashed this whole idea of a God of judgment, they say, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. Is that we all have to decide what's, what's right and wrong for ourselves. Well, what I want to know is this. Why aren't we living in despair? Like Wolf, like Wolf says, like Miller says, why aren't we living in total despair? I'm sure there's people in the room, maybe even today, that don't believe in a judgment day. Why aren't you in despair? Wolf says, you have to believe or you'll get sucked into the angry despair. Miller says, you have to believe, otherwise you'll get sucked into the depressed despair. Why aren't you? Well, from, from what I can tell, like Miller says here, Miller says, either, either you haven't been really thinking about it all the way through. He says, one day I looked up, and that's when my disaster started. I realized there was no judge on the bench. Maybe you just haven't been thinking about it deep enough. Or maybe... Like Wolf says, on the other hand, you haven't really been wronged. If you don't have a God, or maybe you do have a God, but he's kind of like a toothless, hippie, sky fairy God. When you're wronged, you will be sucked into this cycle of bitter violence. You will be. You will take up the sword, because otherwise you'd be defenseless. You must have a judgment day. There must be a judgment day. And number two, 
That's not all Jesus says. There must be a judgment day. He says, you also can't handle a judgment day. There can't be one. I'm being deliberately paradoxical here. But I want to push down this point, if you'll let me, because, in other words, if there's no judgment day, there's no hope. And if there is a judgment day, there's no hope. That's the teaching of the Bible. And you'll never have a life transformed by Christ unless you feel the weight of both of those truths. So let me push that second one down for a second, okay? What's so interesting about this passage is what Jesus hints at the whole way through. All the way through, he says, judgment will be carried out on the last day. And there's two principles here that indicate how God is going to judge on the last day. What criteria is God going to use to judge people? That's the question. And it makes so much sense. It's totally fair. And I'll tell you why. A, God's judgment focuses on your heart. B, God's judgment is based on your knowledge of the truth. So let's talk about that. Verse 37, Jesus says, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in Him. And then verse 42, Yet at the same time, even many among the leaders did believe in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. What are we learning here? We're learning two things. In verse 44, Jesus cries out. Jesus is warning them about judgment that's to come because they're not believing in him. And here's what we learn. Number one, these people he's warning about judgment are the religious leaders. They're the people that have it all together, right? They're the ones that externally look very good on the outside. They've got it together. They obey the Ten Commandments. They read their Bible and they pray. They attend synagogue, meditate on Scripture. They honor their leaders. But something is wrong with their heart, right? Something is wrong. Many of them believed in general. Many of them obeyed in general. But it was out of pride. It was out of spiritual pride. So Jesus Christ coming and teaching on God's grace like really brings that pride out of them. They didn't like to be told they were sinners in the need of grace. They didn't like to be told that, that the light was there. And they didn't like that light being shined on the darkness of their heart. They didn't like to be called out and challenged. But now, over in verse 44, there are others, there are others who admitted this guy was from God. They believed it, but... They were not so in denial that they denied him and they recognized him, but they were controlled by fear of human approval. It says they loved human praise more than praise from God. What does that tell us? It says that there are people who are in danger of judgment in this situation and are not, they're not being judged on the basis of their good works and their good deeds, but on the basis of their heart. Very famous scripture in uh, 1 Samuel says um, that man looks on external things, but God looks on what? The heart, yeah. So some of you might say, wait, how's that fit in with Scripture? Some of you theological types. So let's dig into that just for a brief second. Say, hey man, when I'm, when I'm reading Romans chapter 2, Paul says, doesn't he say that God judges our works? That we'll be judged on the basis of what we've done? Doesn't Jesus say in, in John 5 that in the last day he will judge them that'll rise, those who've done good to life and those who've done evil to destruction? Like, how do we square that with what you're saying? How do we square that with Romans 3? It says nobody can be good enough to earn salvation and reward. And the answer is this. Jesus has a metaphor that pulls it all together. I love this metaphor. It's essential that we talk about this metaphor, especially when we're talking about Judgment Day. And he says in Matthew 7, By their fruit you shall know them. So he paints a picture of this tree, right? You, 
you walk by an orchard of trees and they're blooming with fruit and you walk by, how do you know which trees are alive and which trees are dead? Right? When you look at them, how do you judge which tree is alive and which tree is dead? Whether it has fruit or not. Right? It's really simple. By their fruit, you shall know them. But let me ask you a question. Does the fruit cause the life? No. What's the fruit come from? It's, It's the result of life. That's happening in the tree, right? The fruit comes. The fruit is what you look on on the outside to see what's going on on the inside. Another place, Jesus paints that picture of sheep and goats. In the last day, God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the criteria that it's based on, he's going to say, did you care for the poor? You fed the hungry. You took in the prisoner. I know some of you are saying, What? Probably some of you guys are like, yeah, I've got my MSW. I'm a social worker. That puts me in the kingdom. No, it's not what it says. All right. What's he saying? <laughs> Sorry, man. And anyone else. They're like, that's not even in the Ten Commandments. Why would I be judged according to that? Well, the point is this. The reason God looks at the works is to show what's in the heart. If your heart is self-centered, self-righteous, self-justifying, self-saving versus open to God, humble, needing His grace and mercy, there's going to be a difference in the way you live. The key is the heart, right? And I'll tell you why this is absolutely fair. Um, I have a father-in-law. Some of you may not know that. His name is Papa Son. That's what we call him. I wish I had a picture. Papa Son, he's like the most interesting man in the world. He looks exactly like Mr. Miyagi. To the point that people stop him all the time and ask for pictures and autographs. Exactly like Mr. Miyagi. Cool thing about my father-in-law, besides his crazy, amazing life story, is, is the fact that, you know, he migrated here from, from Korea. And he's got family on both sides of the DMZ. You know, that whole North Korea, South Korea thing. And, and so, but he's one of the most giving, loving people. And my wife, if you know Nancy, she's a really... She's a, she's a sweetheart, and she'll go out of her way to bless you and do acts of service. That's her love language. She got that from her dad. Her dad, when he comes and visits, everything that was broken in the house is fixed, like within two days. It's crazy. He fixes everything. And um, so he's an awesome guy. But one of the things we're talking about, you know, we watch these documentaries on North Korea when they sneak in to do dental exams, and they really show you the oppression and the evil going on in North Korea. And one of the things we've talked about is, what if, what if we had cousins over there? And what if, what if some of them are not just the oppressed, but what if some of them are the oppressors? What if Papa's son would have been born over there in North Korea and would have never migrated to America, and they would have been here in America where, you know, the general morality of, of America kind of restricts those crazy oppressive actions that we might take, Right? What if Papa's son had been born on that side of the, D- the DMZ and, and these other people are born here where there's not as many needs, where being good is normative? God has to be fair. God has to look on the heart, don't you see? It's not like an algorithm of how many good deeds and bad deeds you did in your whole life. Man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks at the heart and he says, why were you doing the good deeds you did? What would you have done if you were in different soil? He looks on their heart. Remember the two sons in Luke 15? The prodigal son, the prodigal older brother? 
and the younger brother runs away and breaks his father's heart, spends his fortune and comes running back. And the, the older brother stays there and on the outside he obeys and does everything the father wants him to do. Who's, who's saved in the end and who's lost? It's not the one who does everything right. It's the one whose heart is closest to the father's heart. So in the end, this is, this is scary. God is not adding up how many deeds you've done. Let me ask you a question. How good is your heart? How unselfish? How proud? How open to God and others is your heart? How closed is your heart? How good are your motives? Yeah, you're in church. Yeah, you're part of a gospel community on mission to, to win the city. But why? Why are you doing all this? What, what, what's your motives? Is it self? Are you trying to put God in a position where, you know, he's like in your debt so you can be in control of your life? Are you trying to get affirmation and respect from others? Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? You say, hey, man, don't look at my motives. But that's what God does. God looks at our motives. It's the only way it's fair. People are born in such different places and times and circumstances. Looking at the heart is one huge criteria for fairness. But that's not all. God also judges. His judgment is based on our knowledge. And I think it's the only way to really make sense of this verse here, verse 48, where he says, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. But in verse 47, he just said, I will not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So what's he saying when he says, I won't judge you, my word will judge you? What's he saying? Well, it's a metaphor, of course. He's not saying like, I won't be there, but I'm going to send the ballot in. Right? No. He's, he's going to be there. He's going to judge according to his word. But in John 5.27, it says, the Father has given me authority to judge. Well, then what's he doing here? It's metaphorical. Here's what he's saying. The word you heard will be the evaluation criteria. And that's extremely important. It's very simple but profound. Think about it. Paul explains that in Romans 2. People always say, what about the people who never heard of Jesus? What's going to happen to them? How can God judge them? Well, it's the principle, Romans 2. You will only be judged according to what truth you've heard. You know, Paul says, in your conscience, everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows that we're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. Everyone knows you're really not living like you should. Everyone knows to some degree God's truth. Some people know a lot, some know very little. And what Paul's saying is that, this is what Jesus is saying here, you're only going to be judged on this criteria. Have you done what you know? When Jesus says, the word will rise up and judge you on that final day. It's a, it's a personification of the word, and it's, it's simple but profound, right? Whatever truth you know, no matter where you lived, no matter when you lived, what century, whatever, if you just knew the golden rule, if that's the only thing you know, the only truth, whatever truth you know will rise up in the last day, look you in the eye and say, you knew me, but you didn't do me. Francis Schaeffer explains it this way. He says, every one of you has an invisible tape recorder around your neck. Don't look, but it's there. Right? And he says, on that last day, that that tape recorder, first of all, is just following you your whole life. And every time you're talking, whenever you turn to somebody and say, you ought to do this, you should do this, it's recording that. And what's he saying? He's saying that we all have a measure of right and wrong. We all have an understanding of what's true and what's not true. And on the final day, God's going to take that tape recorder off your neck. And you're going to say, where'd that come from? He's going to say it was there, right? (laughs) 
And he says, I'm not going to judge you by the gospel if you never heard it. I'm not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments if you never heard them. I'm going to judge you by what you knew. I'm going to judge you by the word you heard. I'm going to let that judge you. I'm going to only ask you one question. Did you do what you knew? That's terrifying. Are we terrified yet? How many of you guys have given advice to your friends you've never followed? It's like a nervous laugh. (laughs) That's only fair. That's the only fair way for judgment to proceed. If it's not by the Ten Commandments, if you never heard them, or according to what you've done, this or that, no. It's... The judgment is based on your heart and your knowledge. It's the only possible way to evaluate everyone. It's perfectly fair. I've got Ivan, I've got Gavin. One's 13, one's 4. If they both do something and they get in trouble, they both get punished. But you know what I do? I look at Ivan and I say, you knew better. Right? You're a little older, you knew your father's heart. You knew better. That never happens, by the way. It's perfectly good. But I'm just saying, if that happened, you know what I'm saying. Okay. So that, you know what that means? That means... There's no hope for you. There's no hope for me. That's what that means. Look at what you've had access to. If you've had a good family, if you've had good moral teaching, if you've had a good, healthy church community to be a part of, if you've had a good, solid preacher, not not saying that you have, I'm just saying, if you have, every time you studied the Word or heard a sermon or heaped up truth, on that last day, that truth will rise up and say, did you do me? I know this is going to cut our attendance in half, which is a scary thought. <laughs> I'm not learning anything else. I don't want to be judged. <laughs> it's terrifying. How will you and I stand on judgment day when God is looking at the heart, not just your actions? When God is looking at the knowledge, the more you know and the less you do what you know, the greater the judgment. So if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for us? If there's not, if there's not a judgment day, what hope is there for us? Do you feel the weight of that yet? And so the liberal relativist looks at that second proposition, and they say basically, well, then there is no judgment day. Just everybody do what's right and wrong for yourself. Just get rid of that pressure. But then the blood of the oppressed cries out from the ground. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to show you, getting rid of judgment day does not take the pressure off. In fact, it drives us deeper into the darkness. On the other hand, the conservative religious traditionalist says, well, you know, just do your best. Be a good person. Go to church. And on the judgment day, you'll be able to stand up proudly. I want you to know something, and this is really important. This is kind of a crux point in the sermon. The view that God judges is not what leads to oppression or judgmental attitude. The view that I will be able to stand in the judgment with my head up because I'm a good person, that's what creates oppression. That's what creates judgmental people. It's the simplistic understanding. It's this view that says, there's a judgment day and I'm going to pass because I'm good enough. That's what causes oppression and judgmental attitudes. That's what puts a sour taste in people's mouth. That's what makes people hate the church. The liberal relativist says, we got to get rid of judgment day. And the moral traditionalist says, we got to be good enough for judgment day. The Bible says there must be a judgment day and there can't be a judgment day. There's no hope if there is and there's no hope if there isn't. So where does that leave us today? Good news. Third point. In Christ, we've already had our judgment day. That's the gospel. You can't get rid of judgment 
And you can't stand on Judgment Day. The only possible way is if you're going to be able to handle this, this moral reality of the universe is if Judgment Day has already been passed on you. So the third thing Jesus says is this, in me you've already had your Judgment Day. Say, where does he say that? Well, he hints at it all throughout the text. One of my favorite parts is verse 44. Let's pull that up. It says, Then Jesus cried. I know it says cried out, but that word is just as ambiguous in Greek as it is in English. Right? When you cry out, what are you doing? Are you, are you screaming? Are you yelling? Are you weeping? What are you doing? And the answer yes. Right? Both. When you cry out, there's an intensity. There's, a, there's an anguish. It's the same word when you look up other places in the New Testament. I, I pulled up a few. Revelation 12.2, she cried out because she was in labor. Matthew 14, Peter sinking in the water. He cried out, Lord, save me. Galatians 4, Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, we cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus is crying out about Judgment Day. He's yelling and weeping. He's warning about Judgment Day. He's saying some stern things. He is. He's saying, judgment's coming, and I'm the only way out. I'm the only way you'll see the Father. I'm the only way. If you reject me, you'll be rejecting the Father. I'm the only way through judgment. And he's crying. And he's weeping. Listen, lots of religions and philosophies say there's a judge. But I don't know one philosophy or religion that says, and he's weeping. But that's not all. We need more than just a sympathetic judge. What did he say? Look at verse 47. He said, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And you say, but wait, in John 5, he said that God had made him the judge, that he had come to judge, right? Well, which is it? Well, the answer is the tense, right? The first time he came to do what? He came to bear judgment. And one day he will come and return and he will bring judgment. And that's what John says when he quotes Isaiah in the top of the text that we read early on. This is one of my favorite parts of the passage, verse 37 and 38. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John's quoting Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 talks about this mysterious servant. This mysterious servant who comes to bring salvation, but people will not believe in him. Why? Why won't they believe in him? Because people believe a Messiah is not just one who articulates justice, but one who executes justice. Remember, in ancient times, you didn't have a separation between the king and the judge. Right? You didn't have like a legislative, executive, and judicial branch of government. In ancient times, the king was the one who judged. The one who came to articulate judgment is the one who executed judgment, right? So they didn't get this whole concept of the Messiah having two different roles. They thought he was just coming to set up his kingdom. They're like, what are you talking about suffering for? So Isaiah says, one will come in suffering, so people will not believe in him. But this is what he's going to do. Look at this, Isaiah 53. What will he do? He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom, from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see that? Do you see that he came to bear judgment? In the Old Testament, over and over, this idea comes out. Like, you don't believe me? There's, there's this really cool scripture in Exodus. Remember, Moses is leading the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt and toward the promised land. And they're in the wilderness and they're hungry and they're thirsty. It's Exodus 17. They're ready to throw stones at Moses and kill him because they believe he's guilty of bait and switch. Guilty of fraud. They're ticked at him. And God speaks to Moses and says, gather the people together. Bring them to the rock. Bring the elders and bring the rod. And the rod is the symbol of God's judgment. Remember, God gave that rod to Moses. And Moses executed judgment on Egypt and the plagues came down. You guys remember? So this, this rod is like, this is a courtroom. And Moses is like, somebody's going to get hurt really bad. You know? So, inside joke, one reference. Somebody's going to get beat for this. Something bad's going to happen. And then God comes out and he does something unique. He says, I'm going to stand before the people on the rock. And Edmund Clowney, who's a theology professor, brilliant theologian, says this is the only place in Scripture where you see God stand before people. Every other place in Scripture you see people stand before God, the judge. But God comes and stands before people and tells Moses, smite the rock. And he smites the rock and the water comes out for the, for the people, for the life of the people. And that's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that shows that God was judged in our place. Jesus says in Isaiah 50, I think it's verse 6, it's a prediction about Jesus. So Jesus is talking and he says, I did not withhold my back from the smiters. Here's the point. Jesus Christ is the one judge who's left the bench and come down into the dock. Jesus Christ is the only judge who says, I'm not going to stay above you. I'm going to come down and go beneath you. I'm going to come down into the place where the prisoner is. I'm going to receive the rod in your place. I'll accept your punishment. And what that means is this. If you believe in Jesus today, your judgment's in the past. Amen? Amen. Your judgment's absolutely in the past. That's the only possible way that you can have a judgment and yet stand in a judgment because you've already been judged in Christ. He took the punishment for you. And what's that mean? Here's the four points today. As we wind down, you must have a judgment. Without a judgment day, life is hopeless. We live in a hopeless world. You can't handle a judgment day because if there is a judgment day, none of us could bear the weight of judgment ourselves. In Christ, we've already been judged. So now, in Christ, we live between two judgments. That's right, sister. And that makes us unique as Christians. We live between two judgments. If you think out the gospel, we have a judgment in our past and there's a judgment in our future. And if you forget one or the other, you fall into a trap. Now, just two brief examples of this. Self-image. 
Think about self-image for a second. Do you think we live in a non-judgmental city? Ha <laughs> Crunch Jim says no judgments. Yeah, right. You're being evaluated in San Diego all the time, aren't you? On your looks, on your money, in every job you do. There's no secure job in San Diego. You're always being evaluated. Are you putting out? Are you, are you producing? Are you adding value? There's no loyalty. There's no commitment. People are judging you on the basis of your waistline and your looks and your age and your clothing and your job and your track record and your smile. Being judged all the time. There's never been a time when people have been more judged. How are you going to handle it? The answer is this. Since my judgment's in the past, I can rest despite my shortcomings. You realize that? Do you realize that because God has smitten Jesus for me, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ? I can take off my mask and live honestly with you. Finally, finally, I can, I can finally take it. I don't have to get defensive anymore. I can be real. I can be far more realistic about my shortcomings, my failures, my sins, the areas I struggle. People seem to think, yeah, if Jesus died for you, then because you're accepted, that means you should probably never make people feel guilty because God loves them and accepts them. Are you kidding me? If God really loves and accepts you and you know it, then you can be absolutely honest about your flaws. And I can be honest with you about them. And you can be honest with me about my flaws. The gospel frees us from hiding in fear so we can walk in the light together. That's what John says later in 1 John in his epistle, right? We have fellowship with one another because we walk in the light as he is in the light. The gospel enables true community where we can be known as we are, yet loved as we are. How many of you would like to be known as you are and still loved? Real intimacy. Because of the gospel, we are valued. We are loved. Look at Jesus. He's weeping. He's the judge who loves you so much he weeps, but he gets off the bench and comes down into the dock. So on the one hand, you can be completely realistic about your failures, about your sin. And on the other hand, you can be completely comfortable because you know who you are in his eyes. You can be confident. You can be bold, courageous. Why? Because of one thing. There's a judgment behind us. And yet at the same time, because there's a judgment ahead of us, we know that God wants us to live godly, holy, missionally focused lives for Him. So I get to say this. I have this on the screen. I really want to live the life I should, but I'm not at all afraid of failure. <laughs> Imagine living a life free from fear. Free from fear of failure. How much does that fear of failure drive you? Yeah, I, I got it. I'm not going to preach on it. Quick examples. Second example, real quick. How do you live in a pluralistic society where people think differently from you? Different from you. Different opinions about everything. Have you been on Facebook lately? Politics. Black Lives Matter. And then you got the All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. Oh my gosh, how, how can we get along? How can we love others who have different opinions from us? How? Well, the relativist says, just don't make any judgments. Nobody's wrong. Everybody's the same. But, come on, don't liberals look down on bigots? Watch a political pundit for five minutes and tell me there's no judgment. The judge hates, 
They hate anyone who doesn't think like them. I hate judgmental people, right? <laughs> Conservatives, on the other hand, they say, oh, make judgments. It's good. But, and they're looking down on failures, but they can't stand under the weight of their own moralism. If they were judged according to their own standards, they'd be crushed, right? You guys tracking? But the gospel-centered Christian is someone who can say, my judgment's behind me. I deserved judgment. I deserve to be punished, so I don't feel superior to anyone. But at the same time, like, I don't feel superior regardless of my social views, regardless of my political views. I'm not superior. I deserve to be judged, yet at the same time, there's going to be a judgment ahead of me. So, so I can love you. And I can tell you when I think you're wrong. I can speak the truth in love still. I can oppose injustice, but not because I have this vindictiveness in my heart. I can forgive. I can walk humbly. I can reconcile. You see that? How are you going to forgive people? How are you going to forgive that person on Facebook that said what they said? How are you going to forgive that person in your past that abused you? How are you going to forgive that person who said they loved you and then betrayed you? That person you see in the mirror every day that keeps letting you down, how are you going to forgive? Because you know that you don't have the right to judge. You're a sinner. You don't have the knowledge. You can't see the heart. You can't see the motivations. Even your own heart is desperately wicked more than you know, the Bible says. No one can know their own heart. You're not God. So the good news is today there is a judge and it's not you. Amen? How can you live with integrity? How can you go and boldly fight injustice yet at the same time go with a humility and forgiveness? How can you live without ever feeling the need to prove yourself only if you know you're living between two judgments? Your judgment day is in the past. The world's judgment day is in the future. So you live with hope but humility. Do you see that? You live with realism about your own sin, but with rest in knowing that the only one who matters knows you as you are and loves you as you are. In closing, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, this ancient Christian document, has a question. I want you to ponder this question for a second as we start to wind things down. What comfort is it for you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Just think about how, how would you answer that? For a second. Here's the answer, and I think they sum up what I've been trying to say this whole time beautifully. That in all my affliction and persecution, with uplifted head, I may wait for the judge from heaven who has already offered himself to the judgment of God for me and has taken away from me all curse. If you don't understand this, the stock market will judge you, your waistline will judge you. People around you will judge you. The mirror will judge you. Your resume will judge you. The only judge who is judged for you is Jesus Christ. Will you accept him as the weeping judge of your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for not compromising your perfect nature, integrity, your holiness. Thank you for the fact that you are faithful and true and you love justice. And yet at the same time, you are forgiving and gracious and you love mercy. And those attributes, they seem so opposite to us. How can, how can a loving father also be a judge at the same time? Yet in your wisdom, from the beginning of time, you had a plan. 
a plan to reveal your glory, a plan to open our eyes to see your grace and your truth. You sent your son to take our place, full of grace and truth, John says, to show us your heart. To Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for living the life we couldn't live, for perfectly righteous life every day of your life. You never did what was wrong. You always did what was right. And then you laid that life down, as Isaiah said in the text we read today. You didn't withhold your back from the smiters. You bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. You allowed the Father to lay upon your back the iniquity of us all. In your place. You stood condemned, taking our place so that God's truth could crush you. And so that his grace could lift us up so that we could have life, real life. And that's what we're here for today. Free, we want to be free from guilt and shame and fear. We want to be free to to live the life that you've called us to live. Free from being judgmental. Because there's no reason to prove ourselves or to swell with pride or to look down on others when our life is all of grace now. Now we're free to truly live. So, God, I ask you, help us to discover who we are in you over the next few moments as we take communion and pray. Help us to be about your great mission in this world, to paint pictures of your good news, to forgive and love and reconcile, to tell your story through our lives and share it with our our words, to love this city, to really be a new city in in this broken down, hurting city of San Diego by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. Holy Spirit, I just ask you, draw us to see Jesus clearly now, to feel his love, to experience his grace, to walk in his footsteps when we leave here today. Give us the power to let go and love. Give us the power to forgive. Give us the strength to trust you so that we, we know that we're dearly loved in Christ. Give us the grace to follow you into increasing faithfulness and holiness and to show the world your glory in our life together in Jesus' name. Pray, amen.